BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Before we get to today's 5 Reasons podcast, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Greenlight Tech. For an athlete to be successful, he needs a team. Same as in business. That's why more small to mid-sized businesses in South Florida are choosing Greenlight Tech, the full-service concierge IT company that gets it right. Greenlight Tech advises, monitors, supports, and keeps your important data backed up and secure. They'll even manage your vendors. Call Greenlight Tech at 561-325-9997. That's 561-325-9997. Mention five reasons to get a free assessment. Sign up and your first month is free. Be unstoppable. Visit Greenlight, T-E-K, that's Greenlight, T-E-K.com for more information. And now, on with the podcast. Welcome into episode 61 of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick here as always with Chris Whittingham. Thank you for finding us. You can get us always on iTunes. Also, if you are an Android person, Google Play is the best way. You can also find us on our hosting app, Podbean. That has all of the podcasts in our network grouped together. So if you want to take that extra step, it is definitely worth it. And there you can find Miami Heat Beat, Three Yards Per Carry, The Balls Cast, Take You Into Your Weekend Every Friday, and also my partner here, Chris Whittingham, hosts Pitch Invasion, and that's really heating up now as the World Cup is about to start. And in fact, next week, we're going to have a special World Cup preview episode on our feed here at Five Reasons Sports. More stuff coming, so check out the Twitter feed, at Five Reasons Sports. That's the number five, including details about our Fish Tank podcast with OJ McDuffie that's going to be starting in July. All right, Chris, we've been taking a lot of guests here lately on the pod, but I thought I could handle this one with you because you and I both covered the LeBron James era here in Miami. Best four years of Miami sports that we've seen, certainly since the early Dolphins days, the early 70s. I was not even born in 1972. (laughs) Normally use that as a pejorative for me. Yeah, you weren't (laughs) born when that happened. (laughs) I was not even born in 1972. I was born in 73, uh, right after the Dolphins won that Super Bowl. So I have no recollection of that other than reading Dave Hyde's book. Okay, so, uh, you know, other people may talk about that being the best era of Miami sports. For us, it was clearly 2010 through 2014 
with LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, and that group, the Heatles, or as Udonis Haslam, who will be on our podcast here soon, used to call them the Big Three and the Little Twelve. Uh, completely <laughs> unique era in in not only in, in Miami sports, but I think in sports history. Honestly, I think they changed the way that we look at super teams, the way that those two teams get involved from a cultural and social basis. Um, all of the things that they changed in the NBA and really, again, internationally in the way that the sport is viewed. And so, what we wanted to do today. On the eve of what might be the end, Chris, as we tape today, the Cleveland Cavaliers are down 3-0 to the Golden State Warriors. They look dispirited in the second half last night as we're taping this. The Golden State, which has been beating its opponents by an average of 7.5 points in the third quarter in the playoffs, destroyed them in the third again. And it looks like a foregone conclusion that Golden State's going to close out this series, if not in game four, then certainly back home in Oakland in game five. And so instead of doing the podcast about where LeBron's going to go next season, we've covered that quite a bit. We want to look back now that we have a four-year sample size of LeBron back in Cleveland and compare that to the four years that he spent in Miami. And I'm going to start here. And obviously LeBron is going to be one and three in the finals with Cleveland. He was two and two with Miami. I kept getting this wrong on the Twitter feed last night, Chris. I'm going to correct it here at the top. Seven and 16 in finals games with the Cavs. He was 11 and 12 with the Heat. So, and when I, I say seven and 16, and that one I am including the 0 and 4 in 2007 uh, against the Spurs. So maybe I should take that out and we'll, we'll call them seven and 12, probably soon to be seven and 13. All right. So let's get to part one of this, Chris. And we're going to look at this from five different ways comparing these two tenures. And I just want to start here to you. Which was the more impressive or memorable run? I'm going to say. Man, I think because the Heat had more regular season and postseason success. Yes, you know, the Cavs got to the finals every year, but it seemed like the Heat made less of a work of it. It seemed like the Miami Heat, when they actually got into the playoffs, when they're going through regular seasons, it didn't seem like it was as hard for LeBron James. Now, obviously, 2011 was really freaking hard, but I think once they finally settled in, they got into a groove, they figured out a rotation, they added some players, and there just wasn't as much drama on a year-to-year basis. There was still always drama, but year-to-year, it seemed like once we got to year four, it actually started to be a little bit of boredom more than anything else because we knew that they were going to get into the conference finals, whereas this year... Cleveland has had a significant amount of doubt that they were going to get to the finals. And then when they were in it, it never seemed like they were going to win the championship. Whereas you always felt like when Miami got into the finals that they were going to win the championship. So from an individual point of view, you can say that he has done more amazing things in Cleveland, getting the 2015 finals to six games, coming back from 3-1 down to win in 2016. And then you have 2018 this year where he's probably going to get swept, and yet it might be some of his best work in the finals that he's ever put in in his career. So from an individual point of view, you can say that what he's had to achieve because he was handicapped more in Cleveland than he was in Miami has been better. But I think in, in Miami, as a team success it was a more regular and consistent achievement. I think when you look at this from a most impressive standpoint, and we're going to touch on most challenging in a second, and, and I think when we get into most challenging, we're going to get into kind of the elephant in the room here, which is that the best opponent that he's ever had to play in the finals, he's had to play with Cleveland, and he's had to play that opponent four times. And I, I don't think- know, man. The, the 2014 Spurs in their pomp 
were, were pretty, pretty damn good. Yeah, yes. no, they, no, they, no, they, they were, they were. Um, I don't know if they're going to go down as a historically great, team. right? Because they can never follow up on it because Kawhi got hurt. Correct. But I think you know this team, obviously, this Warriors team he's facing uh, is historically great, and I want to break that down a little bit in part two. But when we talk about most impressive and most um, memorable. I did this a little bit last night on the at five reasons sports Twitter feed, just off the top of my head, trying to come up with memories from Miami and memories from Cleveland. And I'm going to leave sort of the silly fun ones out for now. Cause we're going to get into that in another part here. But in terms of the basketball ones, the ones that come to mind for me, most for LeBron, the game six in Boston to me is first. And I actually saw a tweet from, I can't remember the feed, uh, but one of the NBA feeds that I follow that basically asked if this accomplishment that LeBron, doing now you know getting this team to the finals was going to rank in his top five all time and his other five were all things he did while in Cleveland they were the 25 points against Detroit at the end of the game there were the block uh it was like the Miami era had completely been whitewashed and I don't know how you can include the game six in Boston as one of if not the top or even top three accomplishment in his career certainly in the top five I mean if you go back to the circumstances of that Chris I remember sitting at a bar in Boston the night before that game answering tweets from people I have never encountered Heat fans who were more dispirited than they were at that point down 3-2 in Boston nobody thought they were going to win that game and, and, and emotionally frayed too from a year two years of just oh come on can you please do it so everyone around us can shut up I don't think you can really understate how much pressure was on that team. He will not have faced a similar amount of pressure in Cleveland. Yes, there is the thought that he should deliver Cleveland a championship, but he was never favored to win any of these series, and it was hope rather than should, right? Those are two very different circumstances to play in, and you're right. I mean, you you remember, I remember that day, I was working the morning show at the time for 7-9 The Ticket, and I went home, and because my sleep schedule had been totally destroyed, I basically slept the entirety of the day because I did not want to endure what I knew was going to be the stress of that night. I was walking around my living room like an insane person. You knew that LeBron was going to have to do something like that. And for you to I'd go from that to a sense of comfort from like the opening three minutes of the game, like, oh, LeBron's going to do this, isn't he? Yeah, no question. And and to go into it a little bit deeper here, I you know, I remember the shoot around before that game and sitting there with some of the other beat guys at the time, Joe Goodman and Ira and some of the others. And the conversation at that shoot around before that game six was how are they going to fire Spolstra? How are they going to fire Spolstra? And when are they going to trade Bosch? I mean, that was the conversation. Yep. Those were assumptions at that point because he had not won yet. It was not going to get blamed on him. Somebody was going to have to go. And we thought the two somebodies, whether they were deserving or not, were going to be Eric Spolster and Chris Bosch, and they were going to have to shake up the entire team. And I remember this vividly. Our seats in Boston at that arena were like they're sort of catty corner at the top of the first section. So we're in the crowd in Boston. It's actually kind of hard to see at, po- at times because you have to stand up to stand over the fans. And there were a group of typical Boston fans sitting behind us, and they started that game taunting him, the usual stuff about his mother, about his wife, about all all the stuff that happens to LeBron uh, in Boston, okay? <laughs> just constant. Just, I, just normal, just, hey, you just know, normal. they started talking about his wife and his mother, yeah. you know, the right. usual. The usual chowderhead stuff, right? <laughs> like, that was going on during the entire game or at the start of the game. 
And my column that night was not actually about what was going on in the floor. It was about what was going on in the crowd. Because what happened over the course of that game was they went through the five stages of grief. <laughs> okay? Until they finally got to acceptance. And by the third quarter, it was, LeBron, stop. Please stop. Don't do this to us. Why are you doing this to us? I have to find the column. It's somewhere on the internet. Until halfway through the fourth quarter where they left. He broke Boston that night. And so I think to not put that in the top five accomplishments of his career, considering what was going on, I think is a little bit crazy. To go through some of the other basketball accomplishments, we're going to get to some of the the fun stuff. The 27-game winning streak. What people forget about that was that they lose in Chicago. They have the Danny Ainge shut the bleep up moment, right? Mm -hmm. And then the next game, we're in New Orleans, and that night, LeBron has six threes in the first half. I mean, it was just insane the way that he played during that period of time. The 61 against Charlotte. That's right. He's not had a game quite like that with Cleveland. The killing Jason Terry moment in Boston, right? That that, and, that uh, one jumps and, out and, right and, away. Jumping over John Lucas the third. Yeah, like the, yeah, I I don't feel has he has he dunked on people in that way and and in Cle- there there's been one or two. I mean, last night's actually was kind of last night's was freaking great. awesome yes. when he threw it off the backboard to himself in a finals game. Yes, and 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 there again of those accomplishments that he had the 2012-2013 season as a whole. Yeah, the efficiency during that year to me it's one of the greatest single seasons in NBA history. Uh, it's it's a top five. NBA single season. I don't know that he's had that in Cleveland because at that point he was still trying on defense, right? He was upset. I remember he was really upset and I'll admit to this. I voted for Marcus Gasol that year and I had a vote and I voted for Marcus Gasol for defensive player of the year. And I remember we had to ask LeBron about the defensive player of the year vote. And he kind of stared a couple of us down because he, th- I think he knew we had votes. Okay. <laughs> I, I never really released it publicly, but, and I don't know why I did it. I think I got bamboozled by some of the analytics folks uh, on Twitter because there was a big Gasol push at that stage, but you for don't him have to justify to, yourself. I'm sure you're well within your reason to, to, uh, to, to vote when I look, for Gasol. When I look back at it, Chris, but the other one I, I, I really regret is the 2011 MVP vote. Cause I, it should have been him. It shouldn't have been Rose. And that's not just retrospective thinking here and, and all the rest of this. Uh, it's more, if you look at it at the time, if you look at Rose's efficiency that year, and his defense. I, I, I think it was in, in a pre-efficiency era, or at least in a pre-era where we sort of defined teams by efficiency. And I think it's a justifiable opinion. It's, I, I know, I know, I'm going to get people yelling at me, but Derrick Rose leading a team without another superstar to a better regular season record when it's a regular season award. And it's not like if you look at 2010-11 for LeBron. I mean, it's a decent season, but it's not even a great one in the context of his career. Like it's, it's like the. 10th or 11th best scoring average that he's had in his career. It's a justifiable opinion to have voted for Derrick Rose that year. It is, but we forget how many minutes Carlos Arroyo, Joel Anthony, um, (laughs) (laughs) Zildrunas, Zildgauskas, and Jamal McGlure played that season. So I I think when you look back at it that way, you can certainly justify LeBron. It's the 11th best scoring average of his career. That's kind of insane when you think about it. Which is crazy. But, But getting to this impressive thing when it comes to LeBron... I guess, and maybe I haven't followed it quite as closely. I covered, you know, in pretty much every day up there in 2014, 15, but not as many of the basketball moments sort of jump out as, as the ones we've mentioned 
in Miami. And of course, there have been other stuff. There was the two weeks he took off that first season in Cleveland, basically came down to Miami, just needed a mental and physical break. That kind of stuff would never have happened when he was playing for the Heat. Um, well, certainly he wasn't going to go up to Akron to train when he was living in Miami. I mean, I just keep coming back to the finals with him in Cleveland and not so much the regular seasons, right? Like the, you know, the down 3-1 against Golden State is obviously the big one, but also, you know, what he did in the 2015 finals, you mentioned that, uh, was incredibly impressive. I mean, he, James Jones and, and Matthew Dellavedova were like, like they were getting steady minutes in that series. Dellavedova averaged, I think, 30 minutes a game in that final series um, with Kyrie out after game one and Love already out. So I would say in terms of his overall body of work, it's more impressive in Miami with the exception of one thing, Chris, and we have to account for this, is he never had a meltdown in Cleveland at least during this tenure. We can argue about what happened against Boston in 2010, but he's never had a meltdown this time around like he had in the 2011 finals. And and I feel like he's had more great basketball moments in Miami than he's had this time in Cleveland. But I think the caveat and the thing that people are always going to bring up who don't want to talk about his Miami error, don't want to give it any credit, the thing they will always bring up is 2011. They will always bring up the 2011 finals. So I don't know how he shakes that. And to me, if you're just saying, what's the biggest accomplishment of his career? It's coming back from 3-1 down to beat a 73-win team to win the NBA Finals. And as much as, as Heat fans would maybe try and argue something that happened here in Miami, whether it's needing a shot from Ray Allen or you know basically coming back from the brink in order to win game sixes, games 6 and 7 in Miami... Man, coming back from 3-1 down against that team, even with Draymond Green you know, kicking people in the balls and, and figuring out ways to ruin that series, it's a monumental achievement. And incompetence prior to your arrival is maybe not something you should get credit for, but he delivered a city a championship that had won since the 60s. So I do think that the total achievement of winning that finals, if you're saying what's the one, then it's probably that accomplishment but like you said in the bigger picture I think individually collectively it was better in Miami but the singular achievement of winning the 2016 championship for a city that had won 50 years back from 3-1 down against a team that had won 73 regular season games I think that's the biggest accomplishment of his career yeah it's hard to argue with that so I'll give you that so we'll kind of split the difference here a little bit I guess it's a nudge towards Cleveland because of that so let's get to part two here And we touched on this a little bit already, but I want to get into most challenging and what he had to face in the two situations. And we're going to touch a little later on sort of how much of what's happened in the fourth year with both teams was his fault, because I think there's a big difference there in terms of how much was his fault in Miami as opposed to how much uh, has been his fault in Cleveland. But as far as most challenging, I mean, it starts here and it is the team that he sees on the other side in the finals. And I'm with you about that San Antonio team. It's a really underrated team and with arguably the best coach in NBA history. But you can't put that team or even an extraordinarily talented Oklahoma City team that just wasn't ready at that point and certainly not the Dallas team that he lost to in 2011 that had one star who was kind of on the back edge of his prime. Those four teams, if you put them together collectively, don't compare to what the Warriors have presented to Cleveland and to him over the past four years. So from that perspective, the Cleveland situation has been 
more challenging. Now, I want to touch on roster building here a little later also, but I think as far as the other elements of of making something more challenging, I think the off the court stuff was much more challenging. 100%. Not even close, right? In terms of what A, he dealt with in every arena he went into, particularly the first year, but it never really led up completely. But it, it wasn't just the arena, Chris. It was the circus, the media circus. I mean, and I can speak to this uh, kind of uniquely because I was with him every day the first season he was in Miami and I was with him most every day the first season he went back to Cleveland. And there was no comparison from a media perspective. I mean, was there more media in Cleveland than there had been when he was gone? Of course. But I go back to the first press conference that they had not not the smoke show at the arena, which obviously was sort of a different experience. But the first media day presser that they had, they had it at University of Miami and they had Bosch, LeBron and Wade all sitting at a table. It was at the field house and LeBron was sitting there on the end. Dwayne was in the middle and Bosch was on the other end. And LeBron spent the entire time tapping his fingers on the table, looking down, looking around. He looked nervous. He looked like he didn't really know what he had just done. And I remember Dwayne having to take the mic and sort of direct traffic for him, which Dwayne did a lot that first year, by the way, to try to make things easier on LeBron. And I remember having a conversation with Dwayne where he said, and I wrote this up in the story, Dwayne wanted to win a title more for LeBron than for himself that first year because of what LeBron was facing. And so the media crush, there was none of that in Cleveland. I was up there for their first media day and their first media day with LeBron back in 2014 reminded me of a standard Miami Heat media day without LeBron. Okay. It was, <laughs> it, 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 it was nothing. Okay. It, it was like the media day for like the team this year, which didn't even have Dwayne back yet. Right. With Goran Dragic mm-hmm. and Hassan Whiteside. It was just, just, uh, it was you, Ira Winderman and Luis Sabala. <laughs> Right, exactly. It's always Louis Zabala. Uh, Louis Zabala was in Cleveland, right? It's it's always Louis. Yeah, I thought Louis was going to show up there, but yeah, it it was Chris. It was just nothing. It was yeah. nothing. I mean, Le- LeBron was walking around, kind of waving. And and, and it was fought, to me the major difference is that in Cleveland it was fawning and positive. As it just was the exact opposite in Miami. Like it was the national media descending onto Miami to castigate and to judge and to not like this thing. The circumstances under which the Heat played on a night-to-night basis were so different. And look, the first Cleveland team was, what, under 500 midway through the year? Like, they certainly have had plenty of drama, but it's mostly been self-inflicted and not as a result of of an environment and a culture that was, frankly, out to get them. Like, I don't think you can describe it any other way. No, it absolutely was. And uh, you talk about uh, the—let's get to the media here for a second— but the, the hot take artists, right, the carnival barkers, okay, Skip Bayless made his career on trashing LeBron. Jason Whitlock, Colin Coward, that echo chamber was all over him for everything, okay? And to the point where there was a regular season game in Indiana during the third year of this, and I remember the national media descending on this game in Indianapolis in the middle of the season, and ESPN was doing live hits outside the arena. Nothing happened like that with LeBron with the Cavs in the regular season, certainly not that first year that I was there. And the other thing about it, Chris, is the Warriors played a big fact in this too because when the Heat built that Heatles thing, there was no Warriors foil, right? Like the best team in the league other than them 
during that period of time was probably San Antonio and a sort of a budding Oklahoma City, two teams in small NBA markets. And OKC, you know, a team you didn't really know what that was going to become yet. But when LeBron's been in Cleveland, this behemoth in San Francisco has emerged, right? And the other thing, too, is in Miami, they were expected to win the championship every year. And in Cleveland, he's a massive underdog going against this incredible team. It might not have been the case in the first year because Golden State hadn't yet arrived. But the last three years, including in these finals, LeBron has arrived in the finals as a giant underdog against a 73-win team that added Kevin Durant and then a 67-win team that won the finals with Kevin Durant going again. So the last three years have been almost insurmountable in the odds to win, and that certainly does change the perspective on how you view LeBron James. He's been playing with house money since he's gone back to Cleveland. And for, and after after he won the championship, I mean, not only has he been playing with house money, they gave him the entire Vegas strip. I mean, that's what it's been like since he's been there. The, the pressure does not compare to what he dealt with in Miami. And so when we talk about what's most impressive for him and what's most challenging, you have to take that into account that he did what he did in Miami in the middle of a furnace, basically, for the first, certainly that first year and for the first half of that second year until, and there look, there was the lockout too, which played into a little bit of it because that created this compressed schedule where it was like this just, this death march to, you know, is LeBron going to be able to get over the top this year? And so I don't think there's any comparison. And I've seen so many national media members who were anti-LeBron when he was in Miami. I think when we talk about what was most challenging, the team at the end for LeBron, more challenging, no question about it. This Warriors team is a historically great team, mm-hmm. and the Durant thing has just created completely unfair circumstances, which we can talk about in another pod. But but as far as during the seasons themselves, mm-hmm. what he had to deal with, much more challenging in Miami. The other thing, too, that we have to take in consideration and maybe we have to create a rubric and really figure it out is the difference in quality of the team, difference in quality of front office, difference in quality in coaching staff, all the other surrounding elements. He did have it a bit easier in Miami in terms of all the organizational things, all the culture things that we talk about with Miami don't exist in Cleveland. So again, I think you're trying to compare him in the context of himself, him in the context of his team. And so I think at sort of team versus team, he's had it harder in Cleveland, right, with you know who he's playing in the finals. All right, so before we get on to the most fun part of this, again, is this a split decision? Because I do feel like you know the end game here was more challenging for mm-hmm. LeBron in Cleveland, but I think everything leading up to that was more challenging with Miami. I think it's uh, if this is a boxing scorecard, it would be a split decision. I'm going to go seven rounds to five in favor of Cleveland. Okay, all right. So that's uh, that's because of the Golden State thing. I think I'll go the Golden other direction State and the team, and you know the lack of you know obviously Love and, and Irving were meant to be the original plan. Irving goes, but just all the other stuff that you have to deal with. Like there was still plenty of drama, and there was still like not as good of a team and structure in Cleveland as it was in Miami. I'm going to go with Miami on this in a split seven five decision, and bec- for this for this one reason, because knowing LeBron a little bit the media stuff was really challenging for him. Uh, and so, and the perception of him as a villain was really challenging for him. And like you said, it was so challenging that it led to one of the most otherwise inexplicable personal collapses we've seen in sports. I think that 2011 finals is something that we're going to try to get into when we have heat guests on to try to figure out exactly what happened during that series. Cause I can't believe it was just one Greg Doyle c- question uh, that sent him, <laughs> that sent him over the edge. 
We'll get back to our conversation about LeBron James and his Heat and Cavaliers tenures. But first, a word from one of our new sponsors. That sponsor is Miss-Inc.com. That's Miss-Inc.com. They are social media problem solvers. They do social media marketing and content writing. We are using them right now. They've been in business for 10 years and they believe in a personal customized approach to marketing. So they only represent businesses that are serious about taking their visibility to the next level. Social media marketing requires much more than just a blog or profiles on a website like Facebook or Twitter. It takes a smart strategy and a daily interactive focus. Miss Inc. has been leveraging social media for Miami businesses since 2008. They don't believe in cookie cutter strategies. Or This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Miami Heat. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, you are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Boxing your business in with others in your industry. Here's how you check them out. Go to miss-inc.com or call 305-537-6465. To me, this next one, Chris, this part three is not even close. Which was more fun? And I think anybody who's objective, you don't have to be from Miami to say that what happened in Miami was more fun. I mean, I'm just going to go through a list of these things. There's been no Harlem shake in Cleveland. I know that's not a fad anymore, but think of how sort of miraculous that was from a team building standpoint. He and he was the one who initiated this somehow got 15 different guys to get in costumes, including getting Mario Chalmers to wear a Super Mario mask and leave Ray Allen to push a wheelbarrow or whatever it was he was doing in there. He got 15 jaded NBA guys to get together 
and do a Harlem Shake video that was better than any of the other Harlem Shake videos that were currently on the internet at that time. There's nothing in Cleveland that's happened that's been close to that. And even the controversies were more interesting in Miami. Bumpgate was eminently more interesting than anything that's happened in Cleveland. Remember Crygate? That was when Eric Spolster revealed that three guys were crying in the locker room after a home loss to Chicago during a five-game losing streak in 2010-2011. LeBron was one of those guys, by the way. And I know who the other two were also. But LeBron, basically, it wasn't like he was crying out of sadness. He got so passionate during a speech in there that he was tearing up. So that's what Spolster was was referencing. The Ainge shut the fuck up moment, okay? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> okay? Where, 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 that will make me laugh for the rest of my life. It is wait, one wait. of the funniest things that's ever happened in South Florida sports. Oh, no doubt. Where Tim Donovan walks outside the locker room and says, this is a message from Pat and pulls four <laughs> of us together. And we had to ask him to repeat it to make sure that's what Pat actually wanted to say and when we walked into the locker room LeBron was scrolling Twitter uh, while Mike Mancius was working on him and smiling about what Riley had said to Ainge ending Lynn sanity um, that night okay and what Chalmers and Cole did but with LeBron's kind of influence on all that after LeBron had been asked about like Jeremy Lynn being the next great player in the league for two months the first return to Cleveland was I mean it was scary it was that dangerous. wasn't fun that wasn't fun it was fun from like a neutral's point of view like holy crap like someone actually might throw a battery at LeBron James like just sort of the spectacle of it but that that was not fun for him oh no not for him but <laughs> when you look back at it in retrospect I mean he destroyed them that night I mean he beat them by 30 so is the question we're trying to answer which was more fun for LeBron or which is more fun for us for us for okay. us just All in right, general what sure. what what okay. what is what was more fun in terms of these kind of memorable moments. And beyond that, and this wasn't a fun moment by any means, but if you just look at sort of cultural impact of that team, organizing the entire team to get together in a ballroom in Chicago and take a, you know, a very dramatic photo of all the players in hoodies in support of Trayvon Martin. Like, I'm just trying to figure out in Cleveland. You can, like, you, you can, you can almost broaden out the idea to more memorable Right? Oh, how many sure. me- how many memorable moments were there in Miami? And maybe it's because we're based in Miami, we remember all these events. But I don't remember these sorts of things happening. I mean, I remember fit in or fit out, but right. I, don't, I don't remember too many things that were either fun or impactful. No, and I tried to make a list of these yesterday, Chris. To be fair, and again, I was there that first year. Mm-hmm. Um, the most, the funniest thing that happened the first year was honestly just David Blatt. Like, <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, he's a fighter I mean, was, pilot. I, the fighter pilot, I, I was standing right in front of him when he said it, when he compared coaching an, an NBA team to being a fighter pilot. Fantastic. That was during during the Chicago series. And then Blatt forgetting, you know, that he didn't have a timeout in Chicago. And, and if the officials had called that, they lose that series. Like that whole thing looks totally different that year. So, you know, you mentioned fit in, fit out. And I think this is the difference between the two situations. And you hit on it earlier. In Miami, the sort of tumultuous nature of that came from the outside for the most part. Now, did the Heat guys sometimes hurt themselves? Like LeBron's comments after the 2011 finals that everybody should basically just go back to their shitty lives and, and he, he was going to move on. Like, yeah, there was there was some of that. you know. So, yeah, they brought some of it on themselves and certainly the smoke show, but that wasn't their idea. Okay, I mean, that wasn't – I mean, they did the not one, not two, not three, not four, not five after Eric Reed asked the question, but that wasn't their idea. 
But in Cleveland, they brought all of this on themselves. Like, And LeBron brought it on themselves. The fit-in, fit-out thing, the passive-aggressive stuff towards love, which he denied. Some of the shade that he threw at Blatt through the media. David Griffin getting pushed out by Dan Gilbert. You know, the Arthur thing with LeBron. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean that, that all of that. Um, and, and here's the other thing, and we're going to touch on this in the next part, but I just, I just want to give you this stat because I looked it up. And this speaks to stability. In Miami, LeBron had 32 teammates. 17 or 18 the first year, but 32 total. Guess how many he had in Cleveland? How many? 46. That's 40, 46 different teammates over four years. How many times did they totally shake up the roster? I mean, the first year they had the Shumpert, JR, Mozgov trade. This year they had the Hood, Clarkson trade. Like, the Heat never made wholesale changes. I can't even remember three trades that they made like they're like it was mostly free agent acquisitions and in been going in the buyout market like they weren't making that many wholesale changes to the team they did not make a major trade the organization pissed off lebron when they dumped joel anthony to save some money pissed off lebron although there's been some sort of i don't know there's been some revisionist history on this but at the time lebron at least acted like he wasn't happy with the Mike Miller amnesty. And they brought in Tony Douglas, Michael Beasley, and Greg Oden, none of which worked out. But that's basically it. I mean, you t- you look at what happened in Cleveland. Uh, the only guys left, right, are LeBron and Tristan, right? Am I missing somebody? I think that's it. Um, yeah, it's basically love and Tristan and, from day one. Right, right, love. And, and of course, love... Love was, I mean, was brought in with the pick that they used for Wiggins. So getting back, and I want to touch on this more in the next part, but getting back to the fun thing, I yeah. just don't think there's, I just don't think there's, there's any comparison. I mean, I, I just, I'm trying to think of things, and again, I, I haven't covered them the last three years in Cleveland, but there was a big deal made when they like were on a West Coast road trip and they all went bowling together, the Cavs. Like as far as doing anything culturally significant as a team, mm-hmm. I think the big difference is in Miami. LeBron involved all his teammates and because he was friends with those guys with, with Dwayne in particular, but also developed that really close relationship with James Jones worshipped Ray Allen, like uh, worshipped Ray Allen, wherever Ray went, LeBron was okay. After that, Mike Miller. Okay. uh, Again, by the time Mike got to Cleveland, he was broken and wasn't playing. And so he was sort of, it was basically him and James Jones were like Waldorf and Astoria from the Muppet show. They were just like sort of sitting in the locker room, commenting on everybody. That's a really old reference. I apologize, Chris, but, um, but (laughs) I I just, I just let it go. I, I, I don't know a word you just said. Somebody over 45 on the listening podcast will understand. But when he was in Miami, like they seemed to genuinely like each other, like that team in 2012, 2011 was the closest team that I'd ever covered and was the smartest team that I ever covered. When you take a look at guys like Bosch and Ray Allen and James Jones and, and some of the players that they had in that locker room and even his relationship with Mario, like, I mean, he would trash Mario, but remember the day that LeBron was killing Mario on the sidelines and then apologized afterwards because he realized <laughs> he was wrong. Like Mario Chalmers by himself was infinitely more fun than any player that the Cavs. Let's not had. get crazy. Let's not get well, crazy. Well, I know. I know you're feeling on that, but don't give me J.R. Smith on that because I. I, I think, oh, oh, come I, on! I, you don't think J.R. Smith's more fun to to I, to the rest of the league, to the rest of the country than Mario Chalmers is? Come on, uh, J.R. Smith's one of the most fun characters we've had in the league in the last 15 years. So, well, J.R. did after shooting about three of 47 in the finals in 2015, did hoverboard out of the arena. Was so. uh, I think trying to get the pipe and uh, taking a picture of a wound's butt preceded Cleveland 
I, I don't think I those do. things happen in Cleveland, but still. I mean, J.R. Smith uh, going around without a shirt on for like three weeks was, was, was pretty damn fun. I would say, just very quickly here, if you're looking at big picture fun, I think the nation enjoyed LeBron winning for Cleveland uh, more than they enjoyed anything that happened here in Miami, just from how good they felt for a city that hadn't won for a while. It makes me roll my eyes and it makes me hate it, but I do think that they like that more than anything that, that happened here. And if we're going to give credit for LeBron being socially conscious, going after the president, calling him a bum is one way. Now, again, that's not fun for everybody, but certainly using his voice. And to me, actually, this is something that goes under the radar a bit. He uses his Instagram. He turns it over to kids. Now, he says that he does not use social media during the playoffs. Maybe it's his team that's doing this. But he basically has decided to give his social media, his Instagram story to kids. They explain a cause that they're working on for four or five Instagram stories. And then at the end, LeBron links to their cause, right? And for me, that's such a just incredible use of his platform to basically turn over it. Like, I'll check it, like how many millions of followers he has on Instagram. But just deciding to turn over his platform to kids who are trying to do good is, to me, one of the things that has gone under the radar. He's at 38.2 million followers. Followers. It's called, by the way, Always Believe is the name of the campaign, and so uh, and and so that's what he does with his uh, with his social media. So I think that's a really cool thing that he does. So I think overall memorable, fun moments in the bigger picture were in Miami, but there were some things I think that have happened in Cleveland that I think people will end up remembering. I agree with you on that. He's become more socially conscious. He's done better work since he's been in Cleveland than he did in Miami. Again, I think it started with the Trayvon Martin photo, but I've talked about this on a previous pod. I don't think he did as much in the community in Miami as I expected during those four years. And he's gone above and beyond since he's been back. But I think it was more fun overall in Miami. I'm, I'm going with Miami on this one. While we have a minute here, I want to introduce you to what's going on with the Five Reasons Sports Network. We started with one podcast, the Five Reasons Flagship, that's hosted by myself, Ethan Skolnick, along with Chris Whittingham. But Chris, since then, we've added four more. Yes, we have, Ethan. We have, for the Miami Heat fans out there, we have Miami Heat Beat, Three Yards Per Carry, a juggernaut of a Dolphins podcast, Simon Clancy, C.K. Parrott, Uptown Report on Twitter, doing a brilliant job there, Balls Cast with Chris Joseph and Slim. He does not go by a name. He merely goes by Slim. And then we have Pitch Invasion, which I host. is a soccer podcast. We're going to be going strong during the World Cup. So check out all the other podcasts in the Five Reasons Sports Network. And be sure to check out the Twitter account at Five Reasons Sports. That's the number five reason sports. We post all the schedules for the podcast, polls, all kinds of cool stuff there. You will not get more information from any other sports outlet in South Florida. Sports by Miami for Miami. All right, number four, and here's the question. We look at where they are right now, and they're not going to win a championship. They're going to get swept out. In the 2014 NBA Finals, they lost in five games. The Heat did. And here's my question for you, Chris. In what situation is he more at fault for the way that it played out at the end, if this is the end in Cleveland? Cleveland, because I think his responsibility in having a major influence in personnel decisions, and look, maybe he was going to go off anyway, but I think LeBron played hastened the departure of Kyrie Irving, and so he has really only himself to blame for not having help. Identifying the first move is going to get Kevin Love rather than trying to stick it out with Wiggins and see maybe they can flip him for something better. I think he has played a more direct role in the deterioration of the personnel, whereas I think in Miami... 
you saw Miami build around really old guys, and they got old at the end. And if there is blame to fall on the way that it fell apart at the end, it would be on the heat, right? On building around guys that were basically at retirement age or reclamation projects or, you know, the superstar with Dwayne Wade, you know, his his body starting to fall apart. Like, those are things that were out of LeBron's control. I think a lot of the things that have happened the last few years that have gone wrong for LeBron James, that have gone wrong for Cleveland, have been in the sort of perspective of LeBron has a significant amount of control over this organization. So he has the tacit endorsement over every move, and when they don't work, they're at least... It's at least in part because LeBron approved it or LeBron didn't like it. The only thing that I think happened this year, if you gave LeBron, all right, go make a trade in the NBA with these assets, right? He would have traded the Brooklyn pick. He probably wouldn't have gone for a bunch of super young players in Hood and in Clarkson to try and change around the math of this team. So I would say really only that doesn't come with a LeBron stamp of approval. Also, the money that they've spent spending money to bring back JR, spending money to bring back Tristan Thompson at an astronomical rate. Like these to me are all things that have the tacit, uh, uh, the, the tacit approval of LeBron. So between that and running off Kyrie Irving, the end has been hastened by LeBron here more than it was in Miami when things just weren't as much in his control because the way that the heat work. Yeah, I don't think this is close. And I think this goes counter to one of the arguments we've made earlier, which is that the big advantage that he had in Miami was a much better organization, right? Much better owner. Although an owner that we should note didn't really want to pay crazy luxury tax indefinitely. And that played into the Joel Anthony and Mike Miller decisions that we can argue them on a basketball basis. And look, Joel was just a, a supporting player. And Mike Miller, you know, had one more year. He played 82 games and shot 45% from three for Memphis the next year and then fell off a cliff. So I think when you look back at it, you can say the Heat made the right decision to amnesty him maybe one year early as opposed to doing it later, considering the way that Mike's body had broken down already. But I think when you look at the organization, I mean, clearly better in Miami. So, I mean, LeBron had to put all that stuff in in Cleveland, right? Like that first year I was there, that was one of his struggles. We talked about the challenges of the first year was he was trying to sort of create the Heat way in Cleveland to the point that he brought James Jones and Mike Miller with him to tell Deion Waiters to turn around and look at the coach when he's speaking like this that was <laughs> happening the first year in Cleveland like that that was basically James Jones and Mike Miller's role so much better organization in Miami he had to put the organization in in Cleveland but as far as the personnel moves there's no competition because LeBron had very little influence in Miami when you look at the totality of the moves that were made um, LeBron had big influence in the trades that David Griffin made you know to get rid of waiters and bring in J.R. Mozgov and Shumpert during the 2014-15 season. And the other thing about this, and this should not be understated, in Miami, LeBron had a long-term deal, right? He had a six-year deal that had a fourth-year opt-out. Now, he insisted, and as did Bosch, as did Wade, on that fourth-year opt-out. And that is what cost the Heat all those draft picks, right? The two picks to Cleveland, the two picks to Toronto, because those guys wanted the sixth year. Bosch and LeBron wanted the sixth year when you could give six years out at that time. But there was at least a four-year commitment between LeBron and the Heat. In Cleveland, there's never been a four-year commitment because he keeps going year to year. And that has made it harder. It's already harder to get people to go to that godforsaken place than it is <laughs> to get them to come to Miami. But it makes it harder when you don't commit to the organization. And then, you know, you have a guy in David Griffin who I think had earned his respect and Gilbert got cheap with him, didn't want to pay him. 
I have a lot of respect for Kobe Altman. I like him a lot personally, but to throw Kobe into that role where you're trying to build a team to keep LeBron at the same time as you're trying to make sure you're not screwed for the future if he leaves is one of the hardest GM, GM jobs we've ever seen when you have no experience doing it also. So I think LeBron is much more at fault for how things have played out. And the one final thing on this, you mentioned getting guys paid. A lot of that had to do with propping up his agency. Sure. Because JR and Tristan were both with his agency. If they were, had not been clutch guys, I think LeBron would have been a lot more willing to let those guys walk and move on with somewhere else. And, so and, and, me, it's, and it's no not just that he, he wants to, he wants those guys to be with him and, and prop up the agency. It's that part of running an agency is trying to bleed the team for every dollar, right? So some of the decisions they have to, they've had to make financially are at least in part because he bled every dollar to his friends. Oh, absolutely. And so I, and this is, this is no comparison. I mean, we can talk about whether you think Riley made all the right moves or not made the right moves in Miami and whether LeBron should have left him in the lurch the way that he did in 2014. But when you look at those four seasons, LeBron was not the reason that they had to go out and get Beasley and Odin as reclamation projects in 2013-14. The reason for that was they were up against the luxury tax. They had already gotten rid of a couple of core support players in, in Anthony and Miller. They had to replace those guys. And so that's why we ended up with Michael Beasley playing major minutes in a game five of the NBA Finals as the Heat were trying to keep LeBron James. It was not That was not LeBron's fault. All right, let's move on to the final part here. Part five. So on the whole, I'm, I'm basically saying the Heat era was more memorable, more fun, in some ways more challenging, although not at the very end, and that LeBron is more responsible for what happened uh, in Cleveland towards the end than he is for what happened in Miami towards the end. But let's just look at the three decisions, two that he's made and one that he's going to make. I would make the argument that he made the right decision in 2010. He went to a place that could help teach him how to win in a place where he could attract players like Ray Allen and Shane Battier to take less money. I think it was the right move for his career. I think that team in, in Cleveland in 9-10 had gotten stale. I, I think he'd gotten embittered about it. I think he needed to grow up a little bit. And he, by getting away from Cleveland, he was able to do that. Um, so I think he made the right decision. I'm also going to say this, and I know Heat fans are going to hate this. I think he made the right decision in 2014 also. I know that Heat fans will talk about how Riley was going to get Pau Gasol. Riley was going to reshape this thing, and maybe he would have, and maybe he should have put his trust in Andy Ellisberg and Pat Riley and Mickey Arison to get that done. But I think from a legacy standpoint, winning the championship in Cleveland, and he cares so much about legacy, um, it, it basically allows him to gloss over the decision and hurting them the first time. It clears his conscience. It, it changed his image from, from very negative to very positive, where now when we put polls up on five reasons sports, even people in Miami have a more positive image of LeBron than they do of, say, Kevin Durant. So I think going home for him worked. I think it was the right decision. And now, Chris, I think leaving in 2018 is the right decision. He has an opportunity to do something that no other player has done, which is win a championship with three different organizations. I think if he goes to Philadelphia, he can groom two superstars to take over the league from him. I think that's something he'd like to do since nobody helped him when he came in and everybody was standoffish to him. I think it reflects well on him. He can build his agency if he goes to Philadelphia. He goes to Los Angeles. He can create a new legacy out there, maybe with Paul George. He goes to Houston. He can play with his buddy, Chris Paul. I think now the right decision is to leave, and I think he's made the right decision the past two times. I would say 2014, obviously 
he tried to define his career by winning one for Cleveland, right? And I think he shaped the narrative, and he did so brilliantly. But I do think, and look, no one could have seen Golden State coming. But I do think that he would have had a better chance to win more in Miami. Now, it could have ended up being the same. It could have ended up being one in three in Miami too, right? But I do think that if the goal for him was to have been the best player to have ever lived, then he could have done more towards that effort in Miami than he's done in Cleveland, right? Because he's going to end up three and six in the finals. And I just don't think that he put himself on the best possible team. Now, whether or not that was Miami or whether or not that was somebody else, like maybe he could have gone somewhere else to play for the best possible team. But even at the time playing with Kyrie and Kevin Love, like that wasn't going to be the best possible basketball situation for him to go and win multiple championships. And so I do think that if you're looking at it through just that prism, I think that at this point, Year 15, the Jordan-LeBron comparisons have begun in earnest, and they should be had in earnest because LeBron has had an incredible career. And so if you're viewing it through that prism, I think Miami was the right place to go just about in 2010 to go and win championships. Obviously, that's why he made it. But I think because he tried to reshape the narrative of his career, and to some extent, it worked, right? Because like you said, the legacy is stronger, he's more likable, and he's done some things to help his image in Cleveland that he couldn't have got done in Miami, and basically can now be responsible for being a city's all-time legend because he won a championship for the first time in 50 years. I think if the goal was to win as many championships as possible, I don't think going to Cleveland was the right decision, and I hope that this upcoming decision is with that in mind, right? Where can I go to build the best possible team so that I can have a go at the Warriors? So if, if I get to five and if I get to 11 or 12 finals appearances, then you can really have that conversation in earnest. I think to evaluate this and uh, you know, when we look at the Heat organization, it's basically the same as when he left, right? I mean, that's how stable they are. I mean, and this is an organization where you go from the video room to the head coach of the team and where the head coach of the team now has the second longest tenure of any coach in the league behind Greg Popovich and just days ahead of, of, of Rick Carlisle. So the stability of the Heat organization, I think that you have to say that they would have figured out a way to get it right around him and that you're right. I mean, he probably would have been able to attract some additional talent. I didn't like the way it backslid that last year. I think that there were priorities that the organization had that were not just winning at that point. And I think when you had Pat Riley talking about wanting this team to stay together and for everybody to be at everybody's barbecues someday, and at the same time, you're amnestying players to avoid tax or at least paying as much tax. Let's, or I mean, let's, tax. Let's, let's, let's be a little bit fair to them, though. The league got so mad at them that they changed the rules and made it more punitive to keep it together, right? Yes. Like, if, if Dan Gilbert doesn't throw a hissy fit in the middle mm -hmm. of the Big Three era, then maybe it would have stayed together and maybe this would still be together. Yes, that's true. I mean, that's the great irony of this, right? Like, that Dan Gilbert was the one that, pissed, that pitched that hissy fit, and then Dan Gilbert, uh, as a result, has had to pay so much more in luxury tax yes. to try to keep it's, it's, it's been a $100 million mistake. <laughs> right. I mean, it's boomeranged on him. Now, of course, the... He was able to get LeBron in the first place in part because of that. And so the franchise value has has gone up by way more than $100 million. So I guess that you make that trade-off. And Gilbert's been able to do more development downtown with a casino and other things like that. Like, there's other ways that he's brought in revenue as a result. But, yeah, it was his hissy fit. And that's why, you know, Mickey Harrison had the most to gain by the lockout ending because he had the best team. But he's the one who filed the protest vote against it, against ending the lockout, because he didn't like the way 
that they had created these, these penalties to keep a team together. And it was just, it was totally mean spirited by other teams. And so, yes, the heat were up against it in that way. It was completely unfair. And I think you can say that if you gave Riley enough time, he would have figured some things out. I don't think his plan in 2014 was wide-eyed enough. There was an assumption that LeBron was coming back, and so they made moves based on that. And we look at the McRoberts and Granger moves in particular, and even the Gasol move, which the Gasol move, Powell was kind of on the very edge of his prime, but that's the kind of move you make when you're just trying to extend something for another year or two. They sort of lost the vision at some point. They were not adding young players to the system. So I think Riley had this incredible vision for 2010, but didn't really have a vision for how to reshape it in 2014. And so I don't know if he would have been able to sort of create a lasting thing with LeBron. And the one thing we're missing here as we close, Dwayne's body was breaking down too. And that's a big part of this. And what Dwayne has done the past couple of years is remarkable because when he couldn't even practice, he couldn't play back to backs. You couldn't count on him to be in the lineup. They had to stick Tony Douglas in as a part-time starter. Those things were happening at that time, and that makes you question a little bit if they were not going to move on from Dwayne, how were they going to get the other players to sort of be better than, say, even Kyrie was for those first couple of seasons. All right, thanks for listening today. Again, follow us at 5 Reason Sports. We'll be taping more NBA episodes, big World Cup preview coming next week and we are planning a heat stories episode with Udonis Haslam which should be a lot of fun and maybe we'll get into some of this with him as well have a great day after the end of a good fight you deserve an ice cold reward Medela is the mark of a fighter You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.